All right, so, wow, what a lot of work we had to cover. Now, I know a couple of you have said, oh, well, the homework itself didn't seem like it was that challenging. Well, maybe not, but for discussion purposes, we've got our hands full to try to get through all this. I doubt we will get through every piece of it, but what I would like to do is start out by just looking at and talking kind of more in a generality to get our minds thinking on the practical application, these life lessons that we are um, trying to learn as we go through this are really all based on a knowledge of what is true versus what is not true. Would you say that? That in this book that what we see is it's either, either they knew God's law and were willing to submit to it and obey it, or they didn't. And their life's journey was, was um, affected by those choices, right? So one of the things that she asked us early on in our homework was to go through Second Chronicles and say, what is it that you're learning about God? So I, I would like to just kind of start there and then, be, and then ask a few application kinds of questions for you. Tell me, what did you see? And I'm not going to write these down. I just want to hear from you what you had. In Second Chronicles 20, we looked, I think it's verses basically 4 to maybe 12. Um, it's that prayer that he had, right, in Second Chronicles. What did you see? What were some truth principles that you were taught through that prayer about who God is? Do you have your list handy? Do you need me to help you with the page on that? What page that's on? And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That, that it's that declarative in that place. I've always thought of Daniel as one of the most declarative teachings on the fact that he is the sovereign ruler over kings and kingdoms, that he raises them up and puts them down. But in, in this particular passage, now I have a really good companion prayer, I think, that I can actually link up. And you might want to do this for yourself in your, uh, in your Bibles. Just give yourself a cross-reference in Daniel to this prayer. Um, and tell me then... When you consider what we are watching in our nations today, how does this affect your thinking about the things that are going on? I remember, Don, you said to me this morning you wanted to stay, you were having a hard time deciding whether to come this morning or whether to stay home and watch our president in Israel um, visiting the Western Wall and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and having these very profound and very um, um, important meetings with these national leaders, in particular with Israel. So how does this statement that God is the ruler, that he establishes the kings and he, put, he raises them up, he puts them down, that he is the ruler over all the kingdoms, what, is that, what do you see going on in our world right now? Okay that the Lord is absolutely still sovereign and in control. Now, I mean, really think about it. What, what kinds of things do you hear the world pretty much yelling about? Yeah, yeah that's true. They're yelling at our, at our president and being quite negative. And a, why do you think that is? What do you think they think about the world? What is their worldview when they look at someone like like Donald Trump, who's put in, been put into the position of President of the United States, who ordained that and who put him there? God did. 
Now see, what if you don't have a worldview that says that? Then, then you can come up with people who become very angry. You know, anytime you're on one side or the other, and it does not matter whether you're Democrat or Republican, when your side loses, you do feel a bit of despair, right? Because that means your agenda is not being pushed forward. It's, it's the other. Um, but when we as Christians see that we are on the losing end of things, how do we feel about the other, that president who's in place, who is leading our nation, we believe in wrong, wrong ways? What are some points of view that you should have about that? Okay, we need to be, at least be reminding ourselves, trust God in this, trust God in this. There you go. So can you, can you see, and could you, would you say that um, if we could convince the nation right now who does not care for the president we have at the moment, if we could convince them that God is sovereign over this and that that is a comforting message, do you think that would change the, the level of unrest that's going on right now? If you could convince them that God is, okay. Mm-hmm. There was only two sides. Right. Okay? And I don't think he ever seen what's going on that the other side actually keep legitimized trying to our president. Right. To me, it's clearly satanic. Yes, okay? yes. But just looking at the people, they're organized by some evil forces. We've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. That, I think, I hear where you're coming from. Yes. Well, I do. I, okay, I'm not saying there's, it's ever going to happen. I'm not, and I, I'm not deluded enough to think that we could ever bring the right and the left together at this point in, in, in the affairs of things, except unless if the mind could be assured and comforted on each side on a regular basis that God is the sovereign over it. Can you? And the question would be then, who are you trusting, right? When we looked at our storyline this morning about the prophet um, or about the king that, that sent to inquire of Beelzebub about the outcome of his illness, right? And when he went to the wrong place, um, in, in effect, then, God came up and he said, basically, well, because you've done this, I'm going to make a judgment. Could, is there any possible way that Beelzebub could in any way actually have given an answer to this man? Because why? Because he's not a God at all. He's a made-up God from the minds and the fabrications of man, right? Whereas the true and living God, the God of Israel, is a living God. And he, what do we know about him? Well, the first thing we know is that he is the ruler over kings and kingdoms, right? And therefore, any question that you have about your nation and about your life can be and should be put before him and asked of him, what do you want from me? How do you want me to handle this? Where are we going with this? Lord, what is your plan in this for us? Right. And, you know, I recognize that the 
Right. Okay, so for us today then, okay, so, you know, envision ourselves eight years down the road, and we're now getting another, another uh, president that has a different persuasion on things, a different viewpoint of the world. How are we to respond? That's right. That's right. Yes, that's the question. That's right. And is it okay for us to do evil in order to try to push, even if we believe our agenda is the right agenda, is it okay for us to do evil in order to accomplish that? No. Yes. Lisa. So again, so what you're saying actually is it's all about perspective also. If we keep the right perspective, if you keep the right um, knowledge tucked in your, in your back pocket that it is God that rules, that for you is the power and the, and the uh, comfort even, but power in particular, to be able to operate in the world regardless of who is the king and to do so in a way that honors the Lord and also trusts him for the outcome. My question always is, okay, so we don't like what's going on in the world today. What information do you and I have that gives us great delight and brings an immediate smile to our face? We win, we win and, and not we, but God wins, right? God, in the end, it does not matter what's going on in this world around us. In the end, God is winning. Now, so the question then, my next question is uh, on a pra practical information area is, what does it matter? You know what? I lost my question. It was on the tip of my tongue, and it went. What happened? But, but anyway, we're supposed to um, obey authority. That's exactly right. Whether it's somebody we don't like or we do like, right. we agree with or we don't. So when you see the world around us as it is, defying the authority that's in, been put in place divinely by God, which we believe that to be true, and as you see them acting recklessly and violently and truly in an illegal manner in many cases, um, what we need to remember is we do not ever want to go that path. So we need to discipline our hearts and our minds right now while we're in the position that we're in so that one day when we're not in the, in the, in this place of our president doing the things that we feel are good and right, when we are placed back into the position we just came out of, we need to be sure that we guard our hearts and guard our minds so that we act appropriately in a way that pleases God. Of course. But we've got, do we not have laws on the, on the books right now that absolutely defy God and his principles? No, we don't follow those laws, but do we, do we commit acts of, okay, of violence or anything that's illegal in order to try to force our will on others? Yeah. 
Yes, right, exactly. So there are things we have to stand up and take the consequences too. True, true. It, the, each, each of us individually must go before the Lord to say, Lord, is this how you want me to handle it? I think about what we looked at in with the prophet this time when he was called before the king and then he sat up on that hill and three three times the the captains and their men of 50 came right <laughs> that was a pretty good i'm like god i want that <laughs> right no but but it, he was defying in in many regards the the order of the king the king was saying come before me and he was saying no basically he didn't say it he just sat there, and then he called down fire from heaven. Uh, that was a very interesting insight to see because as we're looking at these events, even though this, the particulars of each circumstance are different from the things that are going on in our life today, you can still take and draw out principles of truth that still apply today. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's principles for you and I to live by are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I just had a conversation with a person, or, or actually I didn't. Someone else had this conversation and then she conveyed it to me. But that the Old Testament laws are, are um, what was the right word? They're, they're old-fashioned and they're outdated. And that they don't apply today. This came out of the lips of someone who claims to be a Christian. And... My thought was, wow, you obviously do not understand those, those elementary principles about who God is, which is why it's so important for you and I, as we are learning what we are learning in here, that we do take pause and try to look it very intently to remind ourselves, remind ourselves, remind ourselves. You can never be reminded enough about who your God is and what he does. Because once you know those things as base principles, you'd never violate your known doctrines about God. Neither will you interpret any event that you see written in Scripture, nor will you interpret anything you see happening in your own world or in your own personal life, and then, and then filter it through a wrong view, worldview. You want your worldview to be biblical, right? And the only way to do that is to have biblical knowledge. So, okay, so he is the ruler over the kings and kingdoms. What other things did you learn as you looked at, made that list? Wow, there's a powerful one. No one can stand against him. He is the sovereign Lord. Remember a couple weeks back, we looked at that word Lord, and that is in fact what it meant. It talked about the authority of who he is, all right? What else? Look in verse 4. There's like three or four points in that one, but it, one in particular that is in chapter 20, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 4. They came to seek the Lord. Why? Because who is the, who is the one that gives us help in our time of trouble? It's the Lord, right? He is our help in times of trouble. So when you and I have problems in our personal lives, who is it that we are to seek? The Lord. Okay, principle number one. Don't run to your best friend because what is your best friend going to do? 
they may, if they're, if they're sweet and kind, unlike me, I wouldn't be so sweet and kind, but people who are sweet and kind have mercy gifts. They will give you a hug, say it's okay, and that you're right, and that those other people are all wrong, <laughs> even if it's not true. And that is not the kind of, of real friend that you want. You want someone who knows God wor God's word and will will truthfully and lovingly rebuke or correct you if you need to have that done. So you are to understand that the Lord is the one who, um, yeah, that he's our help in times of trouble. I'm sorry, I'm reading ahead. He's our, time, our help in times of trouble. Okay. He is the one who delivers. So he's our help again in our times of trouble. Okay. Okay, so they, they fasted, but okay, yes, that's something they did, that's true, yes, which is really interesting to see when you're looking at that perspective. Mm -hmm. I, what, what about God has judged you? See anything in there on that? What is he, he, he makes mention of the Edomites and those that are, gonna, that are coming against him, right? And it sounds like he's presenting an injustice that's being put upon Israel, correct? Because what was the, um, the history that he laid out about their relationship with that nation or those other nations that were coming against him? Yeah, that when Israel came in to take possession of the land, God has specifically said, you are not allowed to touch this land of Edom, although they ended up doing it under Solomon and, and what I understand, even under David. Um, they, did, they did take possession of some of that land, which they should not have done. But they did not harm the people. They did not attack them. They did not, you know, try to wipe them out or to conquer them, right? Um, and yet now this nation... Although they showed grace toward them, they're not doing so in re response at this point. So in, what is it then that they are requesting of God? That he would righteously judge them. And so that can lead you to a conclusion about God, and that is that he judges. He is the judge. Ultimately, every man will face God in his, and their judgment of whatever uh, actions that they take, that God will judge, and he will judge in righteousness. Um, also that he will defend the powerless because apparently when we open that particular passage, we see that the fear of the king is that um, they are so outnumbered. They're, so, they're going to be so overwhelmed because at that point in history, Judah is quite small in comparison to those other three uh, people groups, right? Actually, it's, it's uh, Ammon and Moab particularly. The, the other one, the, was it Mennonite or Minyanite? Who are, yeah, I can't pronounce it. But anyway, they're actually a subgroup, I guess, of Amon. I looked that part up. Okay. All right. So he is our, our help in times of trouble. He is the ruler over the kings and kingdoms. His power and might are in his hand, and no one can stand against him. He is God in the heavens. Now, that was an interesting statement. What is that saying that he is God in the heavens? What is the contrast then? That's right. Their gods are of this earth. And by the way, in P.S., they're no gods at all, right? <laughs> it's a contrast to the impotent and false earthly gods who have no power at all, that he is the God of he in the heavens. 
All right. So now another question you might talk about in your mind about what we are learning. So that, that gives a good foundation, right, about who God is. And that sets, a, I think, a tone in your mind so that everything gets filtered through that. Who God is, what he's about, what he's doing. The fact that he's the judge of all, remember, that means he's your judge as well right? Now, in, in, in faith, in Christianity, you're never judged for sin because sin is forgiven, but your life work is judged, and you will be rewarded based on what you do to please the Lord, right? There are rewards or, or even loss of rewards sometimes if you don't do things in, the, in a manner which pleases God, which is why I started our conversation saying you have to be careful that as we live in, in this planet Earth, in this world of kingdoms of men, that we obey laws, and yet, as Heinz says, you don't, you don't join a sinful man in doing sin, but you do everything you can in a legal manner, obeying the laws of the land, to try to oppose and correct things that are wrong, right? So if we want to, if we want to change something like the abortion law, we have to do it legally, Right? which means we have to convince enough people that the, the child growing in the womb is truly a child in life from conception. And that is a tough thing to do, apparently, even though we're so medically far along that it, it's obvious. I, it's, but there's a blindness with them that they don't want to confess it. They don't want to see that. And so what we have really going on is not so much an earthly uh, battle, but it's a spiritual battle about life and truth and reality, right? Okay, about the world we live in. Now, here's a couple things. I want to look up a couple of verses. Someone look up 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and also 4, 1, and 4. Uh, who would, there's two of them. Who wants to do 1 John 2? Somebody tell, get, give me a volunteer. Okay, Lise, would you get that one? 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Um, Martha, you do 1 John 4, verses 1 and verses 4. And then I have one more, 1 Peter 5, 8. Who has that one? Michelle. Okay, so I want to start by just reading these few verses to kind of set the tone of what God says about the world that we're living in. And then I want you to give me your feedback about insights that you've seen about what we've been studying so far pertaining to that. Okay, Lise? Okay, that was the that was that one. Now let's go to First John four, one and four. Okay, so what is the clear picture we're getting at this point about the world? There is, there is an enemy out there. We are not a part of, truly, we're not a part of this world. Our world is of a different place and time. Okay, first, uh, first Peter 5.8, Michelle. Okay, now, mindset of where we've been studying. We've had some good kings in Judah, right? 
as you have observed some of these good kings, would, would you say that these good kings that are being portrayed to us are always good? What has been their downfall? What seems to be what trips them up? Very interesting. Okay, so God has put certain things out of bounds and said, no, you're not allowed to have these particular alliances, right? For instance, a king of Judah at, that we're looking at right now, Jehoshaphat, who is, has been making alliances with Israel. He did it once, right, earlier. Then he gets rebuked by the prophet. He straightens up a bit, although the alliance is in place and nothing can be done about that. He gets sucked into a war because of that covenant that he's now obligated to go and support this other king. Then after that, God saves his neck, gets him out of the mess that he got himself into. And then he comes back and then later on in his life, then what does he turn around and do again? After Ahab dies, that alliance is done because what happens when one dies who's made a covenant? What happens with the covenant? The covenant's abolished, right? Whew, out of that mess. Uh, no. Because then what does he do? He makes another alliance. Now, why would a king do that? Especially if you, in my thinking, especially if you know God, first of all, God has already rebuked him on it once, right? He knows he's not supposed to have this alliance. But So what has convinced him that he should have this alliance? Think about who he's making an alliance with. Who is it? Well, Satan is behind it. That is exactly right. First Peter 5.8, you know, Satan, he seeks whom he may devour. He desire, but how does he, how does he go about doing it? Do you remember, Lise, in that passage you read? What are the ways that he seems to do it? Mm-hmm. Right, and, and it is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, right, and the pride of life. These things are the, temp the temptations of, uh, of, our, of our psyche and of our, of our desires that are deep within us. So what is it about uh, having an alliance with Israel that seems to draw this king in? What do you think, do you think he might have actually have a good reason why he's doing it? But actually might have be a legitimate, honest? He's huh? He thinks Israel is going to protect him. Okay, maybe. Okay. Well, it's just like Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eve tempted, or the serpent tempted Eve to think, no, God doesn't really want the best for you. Okay, yeah, all right. And Okay, so who ripped the ten northern kingdoms away from Judah? Who did that? God did it by judgment, right? When um, Jehoshaphat made that first alliance with, basically it was his son marrying Ahab's daughter, right? When he made that alliance, do you think that he had in his mind possibly a, a good motive, which was, you know, we need to reunite these, this nation again. It, it needs to be... One, and that seems, does that seem reasonably good and right if you're only thinking from a worldly perspective? Yes. What did, he, where did he fail in this though? What did he, where was his big mistake? He, for, 
isn't that interesting? When it came time for that battle, he says, you know, we need to inquire of the Lord, right? But do you think he inquired of the Lord before he made an alliance with Israel? So, so what does this tell you and I about our Christian faith walk? Because we know the final record about Jehoshaphat. We did that this week. The final record is Jehoshaphat is what? He, he's a good king. He did, he did good or he did right in the sight of the Lord on the whole. However, there were actually three major points that were brought up to us about where he failed. The first, two of them were the fact that he made these alliances, which we all probably picked up on that pretty quickly. Isn't that interesting that God taught that lesson to us? The very first king, who was Solomon, when Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, right away we saw, oops, that was, he wasn't supposed to do that, right? And that was his slippery slope, which took him deep into sin. And he, from that point forward, every strategic move that that, that king made was sin, and it is because he never sought the Lord, even though he was the one who wrote many books for us, and even though he is the one who um, uh, built the temple. So he did some good things for God, and, he, and God certainly used him. And the, the writings that he, he wrote for us are truth and valuable to us, and yet, did he follow them? No. So when you think about all these kings then, what, what I think we're seeing then about human, human nature is what? What are we seeing? There you go. We're fallible. Human beings, whether they're walking with God or whether they're not walking with God, are all sinners, right? I used to have a little plaque that said in my kitchen that says, uh, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Do you guys remember seeing that somewhere in your journey? And it is such a truth statement. It's really a, a quite profound truth statement. We are not infallible. We are not sinless. We are not perfect. We are forgiven. And I think if you can keep that in mind, it's also something that you can filter information through as you're going through the, the scriptures about these kings. Because on the one hand, you see a record that says, and he did good in the sight of the Lord. Yet on the other hand, you see him commit some really major Sin areas, right? What was, we had one more. What was the other one that... Let's see if I can find it. Um, the third sin that he did was... Well, no, it isn't that one. No, because that, that one... Okay, because as a matter of fact, when you look at that one, who was the problem in that? Was that the king? It was the people. The people kept rebuilding them. He would take them down and the people would rebuild them. And it says that, and it actually, if you pay attention, if you've made a list on it, you would have actually written it out and it would, you would have gone, aha, ding dong. This is why list making is your best friend, even if you think you don't have time for it. <laughs> because list making makes you actually pick up on who was it that actually made that sin? The high places were still there. Why? Because the people's hearts had not returned to the Lord. Not, not him, not the king. Pardon? He did in some cases. It's, there's other... But there are other records that say he did remove the high places. But what was happening is because the people's hearts weren't actually devoted to the Lord, they kept rebuilding them. 
Now, in the areas where he had control, they were, they were gone. But out in the outer areas, they kept rebuilding. Another thing they had a problem there with was in Israel, they had worship going on on every mountaintop, which God had forbidden, and yet they were doing that. So there were some people who were truly attempting to worship the, the true and living God, but they were on these mountaintops where they really shouldn't have been there to begin with. So it was this mixture of problems that were going on. It was like a dilemma. They weren't going back to, to Jerusalem to worship as they should. They were staying in Israel because now these are two warring nations, and they were building places to worship God, Yahweh, on these mountaintops, which they shouldn't have done, but they did. But at least they were worshiping the Lord. I guess in some regards, you know, in the New Testament we know that God says, um, it's not in this mountain or in that mountain that you will worship, but it's in spirit and in truth. That's where God wants us to go eventually. But in that, in that day, he had a designated place because he was teaching the people through which God and through what measure or what standard God was bringing people into right relationship with him and into his presence, right? Making them in right standing before him. And it all had to do with God and all the things that he was going to provide through the Savior, and so they had to be taught and disciplined to simply submit to God and to obey God in all things. That was the first step. That's the first step to coming into real relationship with God is, will you submit to God's authority in your life? That is the biggest problem for people. The, but the third thing that he did wrong, the two, two of them were the two alliances. The third one is, is the rebuke that was given to him by the prophet when he got back from the, from the uh, war where Ahab was killed. Do you remember what the prophet said to him? Look it up and see if you can find it. I see. I'm looking to see if I've got, I don't have my list here on this right in front of me. I'll look on my sheet here. Hold on. There you go. Very good. So that's in, is that one in Second Chronicles 18.2? Is that where you're at? In 2035? Okay, in tw go to 2035 and look at that, everyone. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaz. Okay, that's where he, did, he acted wickedly by making that alliance. So, Carol, that's the second alliance that he, he did evil. But look at 18.2. Go back to 2 Chronicles 18.2. Remember when the prophet came to... Um, um, Jehoshaphat, after that war with Ahab, and Ahab dies, right? I think that's correct. 18.2, what do you see there? 18.2 Okay, yes, so read it for me, Martha. Just 18.2? Well, the area where the prophet is rebuking him. Oh, okay. That's actually, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, is it 19.2? Okay, 19.2, sorry, okay. Oh, it says, Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath uh, on yourself from the Lord? Okay, did you see that? 
There's the other sin. So there were three things he did that, were, that God directly rebukes him for. Remember, the first one is the first alliance with Ahab. The second one is an alliance with Ahab's son. And then the third one is in between those two alliances, he did this, which was he went to war with Ahab. And what God says is that he was helping those that, that hate the Lord. And in doing so, he was bringing the wrath of God upon him. So if you didn't make yourself a nice, concise list about the three major sins of Jehoshaphat, you, it would behoove you to do that and make your list of your scriptures to go with it. Because it shows you what God is looking for in the heart of his leaders. And if you ever want to be a leader, a spiritual leader, you got to f- try to figure out the parameters and the boundaries and the expectations that God has for his, his leaders. And maybe you're not going to be the leader. Maybe your child is. Maybe your grandchild is. And you're going to help to instruct them in knowledge of what God expects of leaders and leadership. And these are three points which shows that he allied himself with wrong people. And I would say at the heart of it is the fact that he failed to, to seek the Lord in it. Like he did when he went to war. And fortunately he did that because in the end God had to save him. Right? He had to intervene and save his life. No, his, his son did, not Jehoshaphat. He allied himself by a marriage, but not his marriage, the marriage of his son to Ahab's daughter. Okay? It does because it affects the whole family. Um, he, but he recommitted when, when that king of that nation died, that covenant ended. But so, because that's how the alliance was made, was through the, the fathers. And it was made because of the marriage of the son and the, and the, it's a, it's a complicated thing. And, and maybe on layering levels, you could say he was always in that covenant and the covenant never ceased. But, but in order to make things worse, he reiterated it by going into a second alliance now with the son directly at the end of his life. So although God had corrected him through Jehu the prophet in 2 Chronicles 19.2, he didn't learn his lesson. And although God saved his life because of the mess he got himself in, he still didn't learn his lesson. And then he goes back at the end and he still makes alliance. And my question to you is why? Why would a king do that? And I would pose to you that it's because he's using human reasoning rather than submitting to the very basic principle laws of God, rather than going back to say, Lord, what would you want of this? How do you see this this relationship between us and Israel? And what had God said of it? And what had God done, which indicated how he felt about it? Yeah. Well, he, he also had a prophet tell him that aligning himself with him was sin, that it was loving your enemies. It was loving the enemies of God. And so God essentially says, they are my enemies. Why are you? So I think about the scripture in the New Testament that says, what does light have to do with darkness? Why are you going to ally yourself with an enemy of God? It's why a Christian should never marry an unbeliever. 
Because you are not to ally yourself with the enemies of God. Those who hate God are not to be your intimate uh, friends in covenant. Right? All right. <laughs> okay, so about the world we live in then, what else did you learn about the world that we, we are living in through the things that we've looked at? Did you make a list on this at all when she asked you to do that? Um, I don't remember where. It had to be in the, in the general area where she asked you to evaluate Second Chronicles 20. But if you didn't, we'll pass it up. We'll just come back to it later maybe. And then I thought about what is our responsibility then as God's people. Micah 6.8 is my favorite, favorite verse. Somebody open to Micah 6.8 because I just want to close your thinking on this with this. And then we'll move into uh, the things that we looked at this week. Micah 6.8. Who has that? You can read it nice and loud. I think it kind of says it in a nutshell, what, what the Lord expects. Lise, go ahead. Uh, no, six, six, eight. Yes. Okay, I would say that in a nutshell is, is a pretty direct statement of what the Lord requires of you to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with your God. So, it, you know, these kings, if they walked humbly with the Lord, they would seek the Lord in all things. Particularly as a leader of a nation or the leader of any ministry, the, the very first thing you should be doing is asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want for, for us? What is your agenda for this mission, for this plan, for this, this process, whatever it is that you're going through? How would you like us to handle it? How would you like us to respond? How would, what, what would you like the goal to be for us? Um, you know, you could take this all the way down to something as simple as, God, I'm starting this new preset Bible study uh, with the, the kings and prophets. What is your goal in this for me? What do you want me to learn out of this? So that if you're seeking him to teach it to you, and you're wanting to know what it is that he wants from you, then you are going to actually be successful in finding the things of God. When we started the study, it was impressed upon me that good morning to what idol worship really is, and that's kind of a rabbit trail I've been running through with this as well. <laughs> Yes. And that is yes. what God is calling these people out for over and over again is do not worship others and what you're seeing, worship me. Because you will become that. That's exactly right. It's kind of like you are what you eat, right? <laughs> That's why I'm shaped like a donut, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We are to walk with the Lord and obey his word. And I think, I think about... You know, walking with the Lord, it does not mean perfection. It means where is your heart? What is your real desire in all of this? Okay, so that gave us a little bit of 
kind of practical stuff because so often we miss that. And I, I, if I pushed that to the end, we would miss it all together. I wouldn't get to do it. So I put it at the beginning on purpose. Okay, that means now these three um, chapters we're going to go through are going to require that we try to move along quickly. But I really think we'll camp out first in Second Chronicles 20 because that's where uh, Kay had to start with our lesson. So let's start there. Now tell me, what is 2 Chronicles 20 about? Who's the major subject? Jehoshaphat. And what was going on with the storyline of Jehoshaphat in this account? Did you not just love this chapter? Did this just not make you feel encouraged? I mean, at, with all the records of all the things that these guys are doing, I mean, you're trying to, I, I don't know about you, but I'm like pulling my hair out. I'm thinking, when will these guys ever get it right, right? It's, it's so frustrating. And here Jehoshaphat gets it right. So Jehoshaphat, it says, now it came about after this. Now, did anybody take time to go back and see what was the after this that was uh, being referenced to? Did you back up to kind of make yourself a list of the things that had occurred shortly before it so that you would know what the after this is? Okay, part of it was about the, about the battle. Um, Jehoshaphat is uh, re returned safely, basically, from that battle. He's saved. His neck is saved by God. And I would say predominantly and probably only because he had sought the Lord before he went into it. And he gave warning to Ahab, don't go to this battle. And Ahab just totally, not only did he reject the message, he then attacked the messenger and put him into prison, right? And said, Give him, feed him sparingly on bread and water until I return safely. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. Uh, Celeste, I think she can answer that question because she and I just had that conversation. Do you, do you remember what was said? Okay. She's saying, why? Say it again, Margaret. No, no, don't. Don't do that. <laughs> You're supposed to have learned this for yourself, Celeste. And it's a trap, you're going to die. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it goes back to covenant. Now, you know, this is the good thing, Margaret, about you and I and most of us in here who have done a covenant study together. You realize there are principles about covenant making that bind you. 
that two become one. And as two have become one, then remember the Davidic covenant between Jonathan and David, where David put on the cloak of Jonathan, and he took the sword of Jonathan, and he all these things. So by, by visually uh, demonstrating to us that, that in covenant, then you take on the responsibility to defend your covenant partner. So, Why didn't you say, hey, listen. I know it. Because Ahab wanted to go and, it didn't, and he wasn't listening. As a matter of fact, he wasn't listening so much so that when the prophet even came and said, no, don't do this, he got, he got angry at the prophet and put him in prison and then went anyway and devised a scheme to set Jehoshaphat up to die in his place. Yeah. What does that tell you about his mindset? What, do you think he was trying to thwart the, the, uh, the word and the will of God in that? Yeah, he was. He, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And not only that, but he thought he could trick God, I guess. Oh, God's word is not going to come true. I can trick these people, and they'll kill Jehoshaphat, and it won't be me, and then, you know, it'll all work out the way I want it. I'll regain this, this city or whatever. And in the end, they did not regain the city, and he lost his life. But it, but it all came back to the whole reason the ally that he had made, the alliance that, that Jehoshaphat had made with Ahab became a huge problem because now he is obligated as his friend to go and make and have a defense. So if you had a question about that, well, then why did he go? It's because he was obligated. And out of good uh, character and good, um, what's the right word, upright um, responsibility as a covenant partner, he, he did what he's supposed to do as a covenant partner, but he should have never been in that covenant to begin with. It set him up for a problem. Yes. Then you obey God. That's right. True. Was to God. I think you're absolutely right on that, Kathleen. Although I hadn't quite gone that far in my thinking about it, but I, I, all I did was realize why he felt he had to do what he did, because now he had made his, he had given his word, and now he's a man of his word, so he's going to go and he's going to do this. Um, but in reality, what he should have done was taken two steps back and said, "Who am I really obligated to serve, God or man?" Not only that, but, but thus saith the Lord, and therefore, no, we're not doing this. Because God is saying, no, we are going to obey God, <laughs> right? But instead, he still went. So what I, that was kind of takes us back to what I was saying earlier. What got into the mind of Jehoshaphat, who obviously loves the Lord and does many, many things very right, what got into his mind that made him choose sin basically to commit an act of sin what what did he start doing he started reasoning how there you go yes that's right and bad company corrupts good morals right yes and so it kind of makes me think of solomon's example in all of this where solomon although if you remember with the when we first started this and we were reading through solomon and all the great accomplishments that he met he he took 
power here. He set up posts here and there and went down. He, he got a shipyard going down in, in um, Edom and he took a certain city over here and there. All these things sounded right. And the alliances that he made with other nations. See, on a human level of reasoning, these were reasonable and good and right and smart for a king to do. So what, what I think you and I as Bible students have to remember is, uh, okay, it has the appearance of good, but it lacks the power of God in it, and it lacks the, the submission to basic principles of God in it. And so in reality, although it looks good on the surface, it's really all wrong. That's why so many people read the record of Solomon and think he's a good guy. But in, the, in reality, he did so many things wrong that God did what as judgment? He ripped the kingdom from his hand. And the only reason he retained the two was not because of Solomon, but for the sake of who? David, his father, who sought the Lord. Yes. Yes, it was. That's right, and that's what I'm saying. And, and in reality, he still should have taken two steps back and said, now, wait a minute, who should I obey, God or man? And who made this covenant, and who was this covenant between? It was between two men, and it was made in a faulty manner to begin with. So once I realize I've done something wrong, what I should have done, and who was saying it? That uh, I guess it was Kathleen. Really, he should have taken two steps back and said, you know what? I made a mistake by making a covenant with you. And right now, this prophet is standing before us, and he is telling us it is not going to be successful, and you are going to die. And I am going to obey God rather than man. And even though you're a king and I'm in alliance with you, I'm gonna, I am not going to come and support you. But he didn't have the backbone to do that. Yeah. But the same kind of a covenant. He was the king. He said, you know, that tricked him into uh, about David uh, worshiping him, remember? Yeah, David and Nebuchadnezzar don't go together. I'm, I'm, we're, I, I'm trying to follow him, but. Okay, Daniel. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm there. Now I'm with you. <laughs> That's okay. I knew there was an answer. <laughs> yes. That's right. I tell you what, the things that we are learning by what, looking at these kings is far more valuable in our daily living than we are giving it credit for yet. I think we are beginning to, t to get deep enough into this and far enough along now that we are, we are actually able to get to this place that we're at now where you can have real meaty conversations and all of us are on the same page because we've all studied the same stuff. If you are not studying this stuff as intently as you should, I will challenge you. When we come back for part three, please roll up your sleeves and dig in. Do not give up on this. This, is, this study, I think, is more valuable to us than when we realize. God, everything that God has preserved in his record is there for a reason. And sometimes I don't even know what the reason is until after the fact. Sometimes I go through stuff just by faith being obedient to God, learning what I'm trying to learn at the moment, and then a year down the road or even two years down the road, all of a sudden I, 
I hit another subject or something goes on in my life that I can reflect back on these things and go, aha, I see what God was showing me there. And this, is a, this in my personal life is an example of what happened right there. And now I know how to handle it. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. I, I just think this is more important to us than we really think. Because these are real-life stories of real-life men who, d- who the record that's given to us is not of them always doing it right. It shows us where they also messed up and how they could have corrected it. And we, and, you know, we have hindsight of 2020. We can say, well, they should have done them. They should have. You know, in some of these cases where they made mistakes, I'm trying to give them also the benefit of the doubt that maybe their intentions were actually good sometimes. Even though they made bad choices, they really thought on their human level of reasoning that it was the right choice. But where did they go wrong? They didn't consult the Lord. They made an alliance that they shouldn't have. He's talking about the covenant. Mm-hmm. And he's also talking about the nation of Israel. Right. Yes. My question would be, you're absolutely right. Celeste, did you ask him? Did you go to God? Yeah. Yes. That's why I'm saying giving him the benefit of the doubt in. Yeah. But the good thing is this, that if you and I will use our inductive methods and make sure we make lists on some of these, these little points, like, like what were these major, three major things that Jehoshaphat did wrong? Where did he really go wrong as king? As a king, he led his people in a wrong manner because of what things that he did for his nation. Well, he did this, he did this, he did this. And for us, then we can back up and we can look at this with the hindsight that we have and say, where did he go wrong? Well, in this account, I see he sought the Lord, but in this account, he did not. And so there's the, pro- the problem, the root to his real problem there. Secondarily was he also forgot the covenant that came before it, which was the Deuteronomy a co- a covenant of God with, with Moses and, and Israel that said, do not make alliances with these foreign nations or with the enemies of God. And at this point in history, it is very clear by the word of Jehu to him, they are God's enemies at this point. Israel, the northern ten kingdoms, are enemies of God, and God declares them that. Now, does that mean every person in that kingdom is evil? No, there are some good ones, which is, can get confusing for us as students as we drop in and we start reading about certain peoples, and they're actually, there are some like these sons of the prophets who are actually what? Did anybody figure that out when you studied it? Did you research it to figure out who the sons of the prophets are? Ah. Oh. Got to do more research because it's good stuff. And it gives you great insight as to the storyline that's going on there with Elijah and Elisha, as a matter of fact. Okay? Yes, you can. Okay. Yeah. It's in uh, verse 36 and 37 of uh, 2 Chronicles 20. Okay, and, and in King 
the Hoggett that made ships of Tarsus to go to Umfars for gold, but they did not go to the ships that were broken up in whatever that place is. Yes. Yes. Okay, and your question? No, there was an alliance, but he just did not want them going with them in the ship. I think that had to do with power and control over the circumstance. But the real, the real thing on that was, what was it that happened when he made those ships? When Jehoshaphat uh, had the ships built... And he was going to basically set off for Ophir, right? Well, who set off to Ophir previously for, with ships? Solomon. That's right, Solomon did. And what happened when Solomon went there? Do you remember? How much money did he bring back? Billions of dollars. Even in our, in our currency today, it was like, I can't remember, but the, the amount of money was astronomical. So why was Jehoshaphat wanting to go? He was going there to also seek wealth. He was hoping to add to his, his wealth pocket, right? So if these other men went with him, what would he have to do? Share it with them. And he did not want them going along. That's my guess on it. But in the end, what actually happened to those ships? They were destroyed. Who destroyed them? God did. Because he wasn't supposed to make that alliance to begin with, right? And so God basically put an end to it because Jehoshaphat once again stepped into it, did something he wasn't supposed to be doing. And in this case, God shows a record where God himself intervenes. So again, now what we can see are there are two examples of what God can do when a Christian makes a bad choice. One, on one hand, he can say, okay, go on into war with him. Let's see how you can get out of this one. And in the end, God had to supernaturally, you know, rescue him out of that right but in the other case what did God do he intervened and prevented him from even going through with it at all yeah yeah if I, I have a um one of my charts that I did and I, I'm not finding it right off the hand but I took those records about the ships and and what was going on there and laid them all side by side on a on a chart if I can find it see if I've got it here because it was it was insightful when I looked at it side by side like that um. yes you do you get lots of points today you are just w really hot with it only I don't know where my sheet is so I get no points for that because oh I know why I'm in the wrong lesson <laughs> I'm in the wrong, I was in chapter 4 instead of 5's homework. That's why I couldn't find it. I've got too many sheets of paper. I don't know how many you guys did, but I did so many maps and so many parallel observations and stuff with this homework. The only thing I have not been doing, and I will confess, is that chart that she's asked us to do about the kings. That thing is driving me crazy, and it's too confusing. I, I'm not following it anyway, so I'm just not doing it. I will confess. I, <laughs> I, ah, well, don't count on me because, baby, you're not getting it out of me. Um, yeah, we were, we were counting on you for that one, the artistic girl in here.
Okay, so I laid, what I did is I cut and pasted. I'm going to give you my, my thing. It was in your homework on day three on page 56. She had asked you to make some comparisons of things. So I took 2 Chronicles 19, 1 to 3. So you might want to write this down so you can take a look for yourself. Because this was information about Jehoshaphat as king. It says, Then Jehoshaphat the king of Judah returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. This was following the campaign with Ahab that ended in Ahab's life, right? Then it says, Jehu the, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. Now that makes him a prophet. The word seer and prophet are synonymous. And said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Aseroth. So see here, um, Celeste, is one where it says that he had re done some removing. He'd made an attempt. It's just that the people weren't cooperating. And he says, and you have set your heart to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Berea to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord the God of his father. So he made a big attempt to transform the, the country, to, to revive the country in their faith with the Lord. Then in 2 Chronicles 21, it goes on in, to say, then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. He was buried his fathers in the city of David, right? Then in 2 Chronicles 22, 34 to 21-1, you were to read all that information. That shows you a little bit more about Jehoshaphat's life, the conclusion of it, how God viewed it. And it said, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, the king of Israel. He acted wickedly in doing so. Okay, so now we see, wait a minute, I thought you just said he was good, and now you're saying he did wicked. Well, what does that tell you then about a Christian faith walk? Can we still act wickedly sometimes before the Lord? Does that sever our relationship with God? No, it does not. But it can bring what? Judgment and rebuke. God can discipline us. We learned about this in the book of Hebrews. And God can come in and intervene and he can bring discipline because a father disciplines his children. Right? All right. And then it says, so he allied himself with him to make ships to go down to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eliezer... Uh, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. So that's your cross-reference, Margaret. That's in Second Chronicles 22.37, if you want to look at that one. Second Chronicles 22. 20. Oh, boy, I got the wrong one at the top of my sheet here. Okay, 20, is it verse 37? Am I right on that? <laughs> okay. I have, to, I have to correct that. I wish I had a pen handy. Okay. Uh, and then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. Okay. And so then you, you parallel that with uh, 1 Kings 22. Okay. So that gives you your parallel. That was your... Oh, thank you. <laughs> Do it before tonight. I know it. If I can... So this is 21. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Got lots of helpers, and it helps me a lot. Okay. So now if I can find my observation worksheets again. Okay. So let's go back. Let's title this chapter, 2 Chronicles 20. We've talked about quite a bit about what's going on in here all the, already. We know then that the theme, the major theme for this chapter is about Jehoshaphat, right? 
And what about Jehoshaphat? What did we learn about him? What did he do in this chapter that we love so much? He sought the Lord, right? So he sought the Lord for the Lord's help, correct? And because he did so, what was the result? Yeah. He, he sought the Lord for help, and the Lord's response was, and God fought the battle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It just showed you that in one instance, he was using his own reasoning and human reasoning and worldly reasoning, which is why I started us back with those verses that say, you know, that we are not to be part of the world, that the world is really our enemy. There's an enemy in this world who seeks to, to devour us. And I can guarantee you, although it doesn't say that, that there was temptation by Satan himself, who is our enemy. He seeks and he goes prowling about the earth, seeking whom he may destroy. And he convinced Jehoshaphat somehow that it was a good thing for him to try to ally with Israel and bring them back together as one unit. He saw this as a good thing. He thought, I'm sure in his spirit, he thought, I am doing a good thing for the Lord. I cannot tell you how many times I have had conversations with great godly people who are in ministries, and the things that they are doing are absolutely against God's word, and yet they would stand in front of me, and they are so excited about it. And I'm like, why are you doing it that way? That is not the way to accomplish a mission of God, to do things which are actually disobedient to God or that would um, malign God's name. You don't do things that are wrong in order to accomplish a right. And, but people get deceived because they got their eye on, well, yeah, but it's okay to cheat the government because this is what I'm doing to help these people. No, it's wrong. You can't do that, right? All right, so he thought, so this is it. So as you go through this, then your chapter titles in Second Chronicles, verses 1 and 2, what did we see about Jehoshaphat? What did he do? He sought the Lord, right? Because why? What was the problem? So he faced a great army, right, or a great enemy, and was afraid, right? That's the setting of what happens after. Then in 3 to 12, what does he do? I love this. He didn't just himself seek the Lord, but what did he, as a king, what did he do? He called the whole nation to come in and seek the Lord with him. It makes me think about our early founding fathers and the records that we have of them in Congress joining together sometimes for weeks of prayer, right? And they would, and they would pray over all these major decisions that they had as a community of men. And guess what? Both parties were present. And they all came together in prayer. And at the end of it, they came out with a united effort and a united vision for our nation. Because what happens when a nation is divided? It falls. And I think, that, as Heinz was saying, I think that's where we're at right now. It's really sad. So in this here, Jehoshaphat and all, and all Judah now sought the Lord. How? Okay, through prayer and then, as you brought up, fasting, right? Yes, it does. What to 
Yes. yes. And the fact that, that he, as you sent people out saying, hey, we need to fast because we're in trouble. Yes. That reinforces. Absolutely. He really did try to teach the people. He did. But they are a So Joseph had, on one hand, he's awesome. And he really does do so many things really well. But on the other hand, he is still human and he made some errors. Well, well, not only does power corrupt, but you can deceive yourself even to believing that your that your decisions about something are right instead of seeking God on it, going to the Word of God on it to find out for sure if what you're doing is right and is God's will. He just he made a human decision based on human reasoning about how the world functions, and alliances were always a good thing, and so he that's what he went. That's right. Well, okay, but have you checked to see if it's okay in the Word of God before you step out on faith? Somebody look at Second Chronicles 7.14 because I want you to be reminded of a basic principle that's been taught to Israel previous to this concerning this very thing where he and all, Israel, and all Judah then sought the Lord. What does it say there? Mm -hmm. If my people who are called by my name. Go ahead, Martha. Read it. 7.14. Oh, no, maybe it's, yeah, it is Second Chronicles. Okay. Okay, let me, okay, that's okay. First Chronicles 7.14 says, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Wow. God's promise has already been laid down in previous chapters that if his people will call on him, he will hear them and he will heal their land, right? So they have an enemy that's coming against them. It's an overpowering enemy and they are absolutely going to get trampled. And he knows it and he's afraid for his nation. It's a small nation, right? And so then in 13 to 17, after they call on the Lord, what does the Lord do? <laughs> I love it. The Lord answered. Well, he tells him what he's going to do first, right? The Lord answered him and basically promised him that he would fight the battle and they would be victorious for he was going to be with them, right? He, he basically is following what he said. Let's just put that up here. Second Chronicles, in case you don't have it on your sheet of paper there. In 714, you see God do exactly what he promised, that if they would pray, then he would hear. And so this is what they did. They turned to him, they, and he, they prayed, they asked of the Lord. This is actually, I would say, over and over what we are seeing in this, this record this week in particular is when you seek God, then you're safe. When you don't seek God, you're not safe. And with Jehoshaphat, he didn't seek God about making those two alliances, and he, and he messed himself up pretty bad and got himself in bad situations. But when he ended up in the one where he had to go to war with Ahab, he did seek God. So what did God do? He rescued him out of it, even though he got himself in a real pickle, because he sought God. And God says, if you seek me, then you will find me. And this is Solomon's prayer. And also Solomon's. If you go back to Solomon, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, so now in 18 and 19, following that, after the Lord answered through the word of the prophet, in answer to that prayer, what did um, Jehoshaphat and all Judah do? They worshipped the Lord. 
I love that. And then it says um, in 20 to 23, I love this because this is just before they're to go to war. Now, if you don't think this is not an act of faith, I don't know what is. What did they do? Okay, what, what crazy human reasoning king would put their, their musical band at the beginning of their, their trek up? And by the way, they didn't bring their weapons of war with them. They approached it without the weapons, with only the singers. And what were the, this is cool, what were the singers singing? A praise of victory. Praises of, we are thanking you, God, that this is done. We are thanking you that you've done what you said you would do. It's already a done deal in your eyes, in the heavenly record. You have already made victory for us. They talk about faith. That is walking into the lion's den with no way to to protect yourself. And you're just and remember how many people were they going against? multitudes of people. In comparison, they were so far outnumbered. And there they were, walking along, just singing praises to God. Like, I mean, if that's not a blonde moment, I don't know, you know. <laughs> that was what my husband would call it, a blonde moment. But there they were, on their way into, and they worshiped the Lord, and they, and they sang. They, putting their, they put their trust in God. In the Lord. And I would say, and they walked by faith. If that's not a demonstration of walking by faith, they literally were walking by faith. They were walking right into that situation and singing all the way, singing a a song of victory, which, by the way, should have never been sung until after the victory was won. That's like counting your chickens before they hatch. You don't, you're not generally, by good reason, supposed to be doing that, right? But in this case, they were putting their faith and trust in what God promised them. Okay. Then in 24 to 30. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Isn't that weird? They, they, and, they, and they helped destroy one another. Now, did anybody do some research on that to find out how exactly did that happen? The record doesn't tell us, right? So all we can do is kind of make some suppositions in this. Did anybody look at, to, at that about well, what might they have done? Okay, there uh, we do. Re- there was another record. I don't remember where it was, but I remember where God uh, basically put a cloud of confusion on on the men, and they got confused. And they started fighting one another. Okay, so that's a good possibility, Yoshiko, because we actually have a record of that happening before. That is one way get, that God could have done it. Any other thoughts? When Joshua went up into Jericho, and they uh, God cut him down to three hundred men, and they had. Yeah, yeah. Although we didn't see them actually taking any steps to do that. Because remember, they showed up with just music. <laughs> but there was, a, it was, there was a lot of similarity in them. 
It doesn't mean, though, that God could not have opened the heavens and he saw they would have maybe through an illusion from the Lord seen a vision of multitudes coming against them rather than the small band that was there. That's a possibility. Maybe. I don't know. So, yeah, God can do anything. One of the commentaries I read said, you know, maybe even um, there was discontent taking place amongst their own nation and they, and they began to have... Because, remember, Ammon and Moab are two different nations. Plus, and there was the other one, the Minunites or whatever. Yeah, and so there's three different groups, and they're all coming together to band against Judah, but there, there could very easily, just like we see right now, tribal dispute uh, in the Middle East. There could be tribal dispute. So they talked about that as another possibility. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say, but all it shows us is they basically broke out against one another and slaughtered each other. Amazing. Yes. Okay, and that's in Ezekiel? One is in Judges 7. Okay, Judges 7, 22. So Judges 7, 22, 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel? Okay, so those are good. You know, one of the things I like to do is rather than going by supposition of, of in, interpreters, I do love it when we can go to other passages where we've seen the Lord already do something like this and use those more as our foundation for possibilities. But whatever God did, he didn't tell us. All we know is in the end that God caused them to, to basically slaughter one another. Israel never lifted a finger. And what God says is, I fought the battle for you. So God tells us it was him that did that. He put that spirit in there. Yeah. Uh, 3821 of Ezekiel. Yes. Okay. So now let's go to 24 to 30. It talked about then after the battle, after they destroyed one another, then what? Oh, my goodness. Isn't that amazing? Not only did God, not only did God win the battle for them, but then he let them go in and pick up the spoil. And, they, and it talked about that there was so much spoil that they spent days look you know trying to collect all the spoils so they rejoiced over their enemies and they took the spoils and they blessed the Lord so I'm just going to put they rejoiced and took spoil and took the spoils and then and they blessed the Lord and that was interesting because then there was a place then named specifically did you notice that and what is it what was it called it means blessing. That's right. All right. And then the last one is, thir or the next one is 31 to 33. It goes from 31 to 37. It kind of gives a, a, a recap of Jehoshaphat's life after to give you this story of him being so honorable and doing so, so um, well, correct? I mean, doing this one so right. And yet, then he turns around and he talks about, he, he reigned for how long? 25 years, and he did what concerning walking with the Lord? 
He did what was right. So he walked right in the sight of the Lord. But, and then 34 to 37, just to be sure that you understand that does not mean he was perfect. What? He acted wickedly concerning that alliance he made with Ahaziah of Israel, who is the son of Ahab, right? So 31 to 33, he walked right before the Lord. Um, I should have put that in there. And then 34 to 37. So why do you think God added this one last statement about Jehoshaphat? Okay, just so that history was recorded correctly, is that what you're saying? Okay. You tell me what is this what does this tell for you and I in our relationship with God? No, not really. I think of it from the perspective that, what does this mean? Does God expect you and me to walk perfectly every single day of our Christian? Yeah. I love this because it's a little bit like the story of David, too. Even though David really made some big mistakes with Bathsheba, right? Uh, And with Uriah, who he sent out to die, basically, so he could steal his wife away. And yet, what does God call David? A man after his own heart. Why? What was the distinguishing difference between, say, David and Solomon? David re- repented when, the, when he was con- confronted by the prophets. When you don't confess your sin, what? Then, then there's, no, there's no platform for forgiveness, right? Oh, that has to do with the ships. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And he shows that God disciplines those who do wrong. You can be in faith, walk with the Lord, be a good, a good Christian, love the Lord, truly have relationship with God, but you can still make some bad choices. And when you do, you need to understand that God will discipline God will ultimately destroy the works that you have. I think about the picture of uh, 1 Corinthians 3 where it says that at the end of our life, our works go through the fire, and those things which please the Lord we get reward for, and those things which were not pleasing to God, what? They're burned up. So this is a, a great demonstration of that. You might want to put, is it 1 Corinthians 3 or is it 2 Corinthians 3? I think it's in 1 Corinthians 3. Yeah, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. So you might want to put that as a cross-reference. Another great life lesson for us to see a demonstration of God loving Jehoshaphat even though he wasn't a perfect man. Doesn't that make you men feel better about, you know, spiritual? In particular, I think of men because your, your role is, is as priest and, and uh, provider and protector of your family. So if you consider yourself the king of your family in, in, a, in a picturesque way, 
to know that you don't have to be perfect before God. You don't have to make every decision right to be okay. And don't beat yourself up when you do wrong, but do this. Repent. Seek the Lord. Ask God's blessing, right? Same thing for us as women. All right, 1 Kings 1. What do we see as the major theme in this chapter? I hope we get through most of it. We're not going to get to two, I don't think, unfortunately. Uh, who is the major subject here? I love this. Elijah, right? And what did Elijah do in this chapter? In, first, in 2 Kings 1? Okay, but it, start, okay, it starts out with a subject matter of who? Who's the king? Ahaziah. Oh, how do you say his name? Ahaziah. Ahaziah or something like that, right? So it's the king of, of Israel. Elijah prophesies what concerning him? He is going to die. And what is his response? What is this king's response? He sends his, his captains and, and warriors out to a, basically arrest him and bring him before the king, right? So this, is an, so this shows you the king's attitude toward God and God's prophet, right? He, and it also shows you his, his spiritual uh, position because he never sought the Lord. Rather, he sought who? Beelzebub. So in this storyline, then, Elijah prophesied... And I think it's interesting because he actually intervenes. God intervenes in this whole storyline by in, in, injecting himself there. What does this tell you about God? Number one, he knows what's going on. So he has omniscient knowledge of everything. And concerning the lost, what do you see God doing? Seeking him. Even though Ahaziah is is acting in a very evil way concerning God, basically ignoring the God of Israel, which is what the statement in this passage is all about. Is there not a God in Israel for you to seek? That you have to go off and look for Beelzebub and Ekron? Why is it that you're doing this? And that's the challenge that God puts out to him. And so in that message, what you see God doing is seeking the heart of this evil king desiring to draw him into relationship, giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn, to repent, to say, oh my gosh, you're right, God, I messed up. I shouldn't be seeking a God of a foreign land. I mean, think about where was Ekron? Did anybody do map work on that one? The, yeah, that's right. It's in the northern Philistine. There's a little tiny strip that runs up along the, the side of Judah just before you hit into Israel. And it comes all the way up to something. It runs right along that coastline and goes down towards Egypt. And then it kind of fan, spans out. And this particular city of Ekron was right at the very top in the border between where Israel was and where Judah was. So he went from Israel and came down to to Ekron is where they were headed, to go outside of their own nation into a foreign nation, a nation of Gentiles, which, by the way, was land they should have possessed, but they never did, <laughs> right? And he go, they go down there to seek this god, Baalzebub, right? So God, uh, God sent Elijah to prophesy the death of Ahaziah. 
A-H-A-Z-I-A-H. And Ahaziah then responds by attacking God's prophet. Yeah. Well, you know what it makes me think of? You're going to love this story. When my, my son, for anybody who knows my son Eric or knows anything about what I've spoken of, he's very, very, very strong-willed. When he was just a little a little one, he was still toddler, like nine, ten months old. We had at that time, do you guys remember before remote controls, we had a great big screen TV with knobs and whatever. Okay, and it was down on the ground level where he could reach, and he's toddling around, big old fat chunky legs and fat little hands, he's so cute, big long eyelashes, adorable. Who wants to discipline a child of that age? But he kept reaching for those knobs to turn the TV. My husband was laying on the floor in front of the the TV, and, and he said, Eric, no. And Eric would stick his hand out and go, no, Eric. And then Eric would go, and he'd go, no, Eric. That went on for several minutes. And then at, at one point, H.J. said he watched Eric do this. <laughs> he squinted his little face up, and he's standing very gingerly, stuck his head. He was still going to touch that knob, even though he, the, the discipline had come on him three or four or five times. At this point, the back of his little hand is all red. Well, of course, at that point, mom is feeling really bad, so I intervene and grab him and put him on, you know, in his playpen because I'm like, I can't stand it. And she's like, just leave him there. He's going to learn. I'm going, whoa. Anyway, <laughs> but you know, he was just a baby at that point, like nine or ten months old, but he would not submit. And that is what you see going on here in this storyline, is it not? Do you think that's true? That it's like, stick your hand out there. Let's go ahead. Do it again, you know? So how many times does, does Ahaziah continue to send his cronies out? Three times. So let's get this going. One to six, we see Elijah. However, there's a storyline that's given to us. Oh, no, wrong one. Wrong one. Uh, sorry, I jumped into the wrong, into the wrong um, chart part here. Verses 1 and 2, we see Israel's king. See how I avoided Ahaziah? <laughs> he became ill, right? And he, and he sins to inquire of Beelzebub. Okay. Um, this is interesting. I, got a, I did a little bit of uh, research on this. The writer ridicules this god of Ekron by changing his name from the origi- original, which is Baal Zebul, Z-E-B-U-L. Did anybody pick up on this or read anything about this? <laughs> you did? Oh, good, Martha. What did you? Okay, and? So apparently Baal, like Zebul is high place or high exalted dwelling. Mm-hmm. So Zebub is flies. Yes. Flies. Yeah, so we went from a high exalted place to being a fly. <laughs> God of flies. They call it high places to God of flies. Yeah. So very interesting. It all, and also another thing, 
Zebul, Z-E-B-U-L, which is high place, it also occurs in the name of Jezebel, Jezebel, okay, which uh, means where is the prince is, her, is what her name translates for. I thought that was interesting. Okay, so sidebar there, a little bit of information that's fun. See, these are the kinds of things you can do on our break time is look a lot of this kind of stuff up. Just If you will just t- go back and do some, number one, do some map work. I don't know how many of you took the time to draw out maps, but if you didn't draw for yourself maps or print out maps and color them and mark them and, and get them you know, in your head right, I even often have been drawing maps right on my observation worksheets like this out in the, out in the side just to show myself so that I visually can see a little picture of what's going on and where, because sometimes it's really profoundly significant. In this case, I showed myself, see where the blue is, is uh, the land of the Philistines, where that city of Ekron was way at the top. And then the green is Israel and the red is Judah. So it just gave me a visualization. It doesn't have to be proportional right. It just has to give you a general concept of, of what's going on there so you can visualize it better. Okay, and that is also a great way for you to eventually kind of get a better grip on, you know, locations of things and what's going on there. Okay, now in three to six, who shows up? Now, this is a very interesting sidebar of study. Who shows up here? The angel of the Lord. Does anybody know who that is? That is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, um, we don't have the time to, to actually go in this and look, but, but it's really clearly taught to you when you go back into some of the earlier records, like in, um, particularly in Genesis, but also in some of the other uh, um, Deuteronomy or th- those kinds of places, Judges, where God is present and he sends the angel of the Lord. Otherwise, it will just say an angel of the Lord. But if it says the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus. And generally, you can tell by the comments or the, or the response of the person when they're reacting to the angel of the Lord. What you all, almost always see is an act of worship when the angel of the Lord is uh, presented. In this particular record, you don't see an act of worship that confirms that to you through that way. But one of the things you do see is that the angel of the Lord appears. He speaks to Elijah and tells Elijah to go tell something to the king, right? And when he goes and he speaks, what does he say? Thus saith the Lord. So it's as if the angel of the Lord now in his mind is thus saith the Lord. Are you catching me with that? So it's, an, it's, it's subtle. And it isn't totally inclusive until you, until you kind of combine that with the other things that are said in, in the record of, of how that use of the angel of the Lord is given to us. So the angel of the Lord comes. He, he um, intercepts sending Elijah to prophesy death because he's inquired of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord intercepts. Intercepts. Um, I just leave it that way. That's good enough for now. Seven to nine. Then what does Ahaziah do? How does he respond? When he finds out about this message, the angel of the Lord intercepts and he, and he, he tells him basically doom or death to that king. What does Ahaziah do? Yeah, he sends soldiers 
to arrest. Now, what kind of a pattern have we seen now when the, when the uh, prophet of God speaks and the, and the person who's hearing it does not like the message? What has been the response of the people? They, they generally aggressively come after them. They throw them in prison or they try to arrest them or they try to kill them. Now, when the prophets of God come to others, for instance, such as with Jehoshaphat, when Jehu came to him and rebuked him about a sin, what did he do? What was the thing, thing that followed his rebuke? When Jehu comes to Jehoshaphat and rebukes him about, about going to war, right? What was his response? Following that rebuke in Second uh, Chronicles 19.2, what followed that? Do you remember what Je- Jehoshaphat then proceeded to do in his nation? What did he go to do in his nation? He, yeah, he sent people out to teach people the, the statutes of the Lord and the knowledge of God. So he actually responds in a positive way towards God's rebuke, where the unbeliever responds in a negative way. So this is consistent. One of the things I think that we can draw out of this would be when we are working with people in our life, and you rebuke them in the name of the Lord, in love, you've got, I'm just, we're just going to go on the premise that you're doing it all right. If you do it all right, and you're gentle, and you're loving, and you've prayed up, and you know you're there on God's mission, you rebuke to that person, and then that person vehemently comes against you. What can you possibly assume at this point? Huh? Oh, there's wine. Okay, before, yes. (laughs) Got it. I just wasn't following you, but now I get it. You're casting your pearls before the, the swine. Okay, possibly that is the answer. Now, I'm not saying that's always the truth. I'm just saying you need to consider that these examples that are being given to us here might help you to train up your mind to recognize the kinds of responses. Now, it can be possible that a Christian will initially respond negatively, but then shortly thereafter they'll come back and say, you know, I'm really sorry, you were right. But if a person responds negatively and does something like what we saw with Ahab, throwing someone in prison and say, only give them bread and water until I return, right? Feed them sparingly. Um, then you can pretty much assume that that person is not a friend of God. Okay? So it's, a, it's just a rule of thumb. But it is, do you think it's a life lesson that God's demonstrating to us in Scripture? Yeah, I do too. I think it's an important life lesson. Because is that something that you and I deal with regularly? That we find ourselves having to correct, if not, if not other Christians in our church, but for sure our own family members, right? Where we have to go to a family member who's not walking with the Lord, but says they love the Lord, and yet they're not walking with the Lord. So when you correct them and they, and they revile against that, and they, they become against you in anger, then what might you consider at that point? Maybe they're not a believer after all. I mean, even if you've always thought they were, Maybe this is an indicator. Maybe not, but maybe so. All I'm saying is it has to factor in because this is a demonstration that God is very clearly giving to us here. What is the difference of the responses between someone who knows the Lord when they're given a rebuke and someone who doesn't know the Lord when they're given a rebuke? And since he's showing that to us very clearly, there is a life lesson in this for you and I to try to adhere and pull out as much as we can from it, okay? There are no cut and dry answers in any of this, but, but there are applications. Okay, then in 10 to 14, 
I love this part. This is, this is the part I was thinking, I'd like to have this power, wouldn't you? <laughs> what does God do here through Elijah? Yeah, it sends that fire down from him. So, so God's power is demonstrated against his enemies. And I wish we had time because I had a bunch of verses I looked up about um, about those who um, those who attack a Christian. Who are they really attacking? Is God, right? And so there's all these wonderful verses that teach us about um, scorning. It's in the, in the Second Kings as we get to the end of this. If we were do, able to do Second Kings and we're not, remember where there they call Elisha a bald-headed man. What, what was that about? Does anybody know what that was about? Did you look it up? Did you research it at all? No. It's simply an insult in the in the in the culture of the Jewish people to not have a full head of hair was an insult. Because God, somewhere in scripture says that God promised basically that they would have a full head of hair. I don't know why, but it's part of the scripture. So they consider it, bald head was a scorning remark of contempt. Disrespect and contempt towards God's prophet is also viewed by God as an attack or a rejection directly against himself. Now that's in Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19. You need to mark that down as a verse. And Jesus, by the way, teaches the same principle in the New Testament that those who reject us as God's representatives in this world, are actually, they are actually rejecting God himself, okay? I think you and I talked about this one time, Heinz, that where you talked about you were impressed by the fact that when, when I am speaking to someone who, who has the Holy Spirit, I'm really speaking right to the Lord. I think you and I talked about that one time. I remember that stuck with me. I went, that's really a profound thought. So when you and I speak to one another, especially if it's rebuke in this case where they're talking about a rebuke like this, that that person, if they yell at me, they're actually yelling at God. (laughs) And so you're going to look in uh, Luke 10, 16 and John 15, 18 to 25, where Jesus teaches that if they hate you, they're really hating me, okay? Luke 10, 16, and then John 15, 18 to 25. Okay, the last, the last point in, in 1 Kings 1, and we have just time to cover it, is in verses 15 and 16, as it concludes this. What do we see in the conclusion of this chapter? Elijah delivers his message, and what happens? Then Elijah dies. How? Ahaziah dies according to what? According to the word of the Lord. So God does exactly what he says he would do. And so when the prophet speaks, he speaks for God. And when the prophet speaks, what he says will come to pass. So that's another prophet uh, principle to learn. But I think if you, if you don't learn anything else as you're going through these records about these prophets, as you are really seeing that the prophet um, 
to reject the prophet, for Israel particularly as a nation, for them to reject a prophet, like in the next chapter where Elisha takes on the the mantle or takes up the mantle of Elijah when he's carried up into heaven, then what follows that is a demonstration that that was a truth reality, that he was the appointed new prophet for Israel and that God had chosen him. So God gave him then powers and signs to affirm that, to give authority to him. And we see then that what happens, it says that, that um, the, first of all, he makes sure that the sons of the prophets see that he is now their spiritual father and their leader, just as Elijah was. That double portion does not mean double of something. The double portion is a, is a, uh, is a reference to the firstborn's inheritance. Okay? Because so one of the things you can't, can you ever get two of the Holy Spirit? Can you get two of God's power that's within you? No, you can't get double of anything in that measure. What it does mean is this. Let me just read it to you. The double portion inheritance is passed to the firstborn son and puts him in the patriarchal position over the family, making him responsible to protect, to provide, and govern, carrying on where the father left off. So in the next chapter where we see Elijah being taken up and Elisha then, the mantle comes down. Remember earlier, in an earlier chapter, I think it was in 19, 2 Chronicles 19, Elijah had gone to where Elisha was plowing in the field and he threw his mantle over him, right? So now this same mantle falls to the earth and Elisha picks it up then and and the first thing he does with it is what? Parts the water. It's exactly the same parting of the water that Elijah had done before him. So it demonstrates that now the same power Elijah had, Elisha has. So that's the first. It confirms to himself that God has passed this mantle onto him, this responsibility of the firstborn to be this protector, provider, overseer for the, the sons of the prophet in particular, okay? And, and for the nation of Israel. And then secondly, um, um, let me think. Was the, then the second one was he turned the water, the water, he purified the water. Bunch of symbolic things going on in that particular picture. But in essence, it was showing the power of God through Elijah to the people, to the masses, that he is the, the uh, authorized successor to that position as the leader of the prophets. And then the third thing he did was then do what with those boys who were mocking him and calling him a bald head, huh? Yeah, curse them. And when the cursing occurred, again, what did God send? Bears. The, the first couple of instances we've had were what? Lions. Now we get bears. <laughs> and so now these boys are, and the interesting, it says, and it tore them up. It really means it tore them apart. It rent them under. It, it killed them. They are dead. 41 of those, I think it was, of those boys died because they were doing what? Calling him a bald-headed man. What was that, in essence, doing? Reviling God because he was God's prophet. And that's the principle you have to remember about the prophets. When the prophets are reviled or the prophets are thrown in prison or the prophets are, are argued against, what God is teaching us about God's prophet is they stand in, in the gap between us and God, and they represent God's word and his authority. And when you revile the prophet, you revile God himself. 
So God then takes that very seriously. So they called him a bald-headed man as an, as an act of scorning and jeering. And God responded in kind to say, you will not scorn and, and revere me. And he puts him under. And that what that does is, in those three instances of miracles, so to speak, God then affirms Elisha as the, the mantle bearer for God as the lead of the prophets. The sons of the prophet, you're going to find that they're going to come up again. I think in, in 1 Kings 11, they might come up even sooner, sooner than that again. But you need to do research on who the sons of the prophets are. Because that, that teaches you a little bit about this spiritual authority as a spiritual father. Do you remember what Elisha said to Elijah as he was going up? What was his call? He called out to him and he, what did he say? Elijah, Elijah. No, he said, my father, my father. He was speaking to his spiritual father. So the, the parallel in this, is, in this picture here is if you had an earthly father, you would receive the double portion of inheritance and then assume that responsibility. With Elisha and Elijah, it was a spiritual relationship and he was his spiritual father. So what was he going to receive from him? Not earthly inheritance, right? But what? A spiritual inheritance, which was his authority to be the lead prophet in Israel. So that's what he inherited from Elijah. And God affirmed it to him once it, once it occurred by dropping the mantle, by using the mantle to part the waters, by, by performing those other two miracles then that followed after that. So this affirms to us, it sets the stage then for everything else that follows with the life of Elijah and Elisha, through Elisha. All right. And there was lots more that we could have discussed, but... Those are, I think we got through pretty much everything.